My name's Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I would love to be able to meet you, and I'm so glad that you're here at FBC. Uh, we're continuing our time of worship now through uh, opening up God's Word together. So I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 19, verse 1, as we get started. Luke 19, verse 1. If you need a Bible, there are some on the seats in front of you, or of course you can follow along and your own copy of God's Word. However, you need to find it. Again, Luke 19, verse 1. And as you're finding that, again, there are so many things to be excited about at FBC right now. As Lee just shared, we're so excited about the Togo uh, project, the giving opportunity that we have there, and all the generosity we've already seen from you. So we're so excited about that. We're excited about the kids' choir performance tonight at 6.30. And yeah, and, and really, if if you've never been to one of those, tonight's the night, people. You got to come check it out. It's so much fun. Even if you don't have kids or if you don't have kids here, it is so fun for our whole church to come together and celebrate and see these kids sing and dance and put on this play and tell the story of Christmas. It, it really is special. And, and there's, there's cookies. Did we mention cookies? So come out, get some cookies, have fun. And then we're also, of course, celebrated or excited about the walk through Bethlehem. Yeah, and, yeah. And again, I know these, these were all just announced, so this is like announcements part two, but I'm, I'm just excited about it. So I wanted you to know that I'm excited. So that hopefully we're all excited. It's going to be great, and let's be praying. So anyways, okay, Luke 19, verse 1. This is uh, week two of our Advent series that Lee kicked off last week. Big thank you to Pastor Lee for preaching. It's always encouraging to hear him bring the message. Amber and I were gone last week. We missed you, but we're glad to be back now and continue this series that we're calling God in Person. That's the theme of Advent this year for us, God in Person, where we want to look at the fact and reflect on the fact that God came to us in person. Jesus showed up. He was born and lived and walked among us. And so we do not worship a God that is isolated or far off, but a God that drew near to us. And we see in the scriptures that God did not just send his words to us through prophets. He did not just send written words to us through the Bible. He did that, but he showed up in person. He didn't just send a, a gospel blimp or a plane, you know, that flies by with a message across the sky. He didn't just send a group text to us with a bunch of emojis about who he is and what he wanted us to know. He showed up in person, and we know the power of presence. Even if we all couldn't articulate this, we all know the power of presence. Think about it. What's more uncomfortable for you when a telemarketer calls you or when a door-to-door -door salesman knocks at your door, right? It's the door-to-door -door salesman because they're there in the flesh, knocking, demanding something from you. Or in a positive light, what's more comforting to you? When a friend sends you a text message in a difficult time or when a friend shows up and sits next to you in a hospital waiting room where someone in your family is sick, right? It's when someone shows up the power of presence. And I bet some of you could look back at your life. We all actually could look back at our lives and think about the high points and the low points. And we might not be able to remember the specific things that people said or even the specific order of certain events and how things unfolded. But I bet you we could all remember the people who were there 
we remember that someone showed up. And so, for a few weeks here in December, we get to think about the reality that God showed up. Jesus came to us in person. Would you pray with me one more time as we prepare to jump into the text? Father, we love you and we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your love and your grace. Jesus, thank you for coming to us, for showing up in person to save us, to rescue us, to show us what you're like. We pray, God, as we jump into Luke 19 here, that you would, by your spirit, uh, help us understand what we read. Would you teach us? Would you shape us and convict us and encourage us and do everything that you want to do in us, Lord? We open our hearts and our hands and our eyes, Lord, to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're going to jump into Luke 19. And let me just say, I've been so excited to preach this text this week. This is my first time preaching in Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. And it might be my new favorite passage in the whole Bible. Okay, so I'm so jazzed to jump in, and I hope, I hope that you'll see why. Okay, I know the bar expectations now are high, but we're going to see the Word of God is, is powerful. So let's take a look. Luke 19, verse 1, it says this. Jesus entered Jericho. And was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. And he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. All right. We see Jesus passing through Jericho. And in verse 2, we're introduced to a man named Zacchaeus. And what does the text tell us? It tells us he's wealthy, and it tells us he's a tax collector. Now, if you know about first century culture, especially in the Jewish world, tax collectors were not very popular. They were not thought of very highly. In fact, if you have a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's a children's Bible. We have one. We read it to our kids regularly. It's a fantastic resource. The chapter on Zacchaeus and Jesus and their interaction is called the man who had no friends because Zacchaeus was not liked. He's a tax collector, which meant that his job was to collect from people taxes and tolls and various customs. Jericho was a border city, and so a lot of wealth and commerce and trade and goods would would pass through Jericho. So a lot of wealth was to be had there. He had a big responsibility. But tax collectors essentially worked for the Romans. The Romans were those in power, the occupying force over the Jews. And the Jews, frankly, didn't like that. They didn't like that they were the people of God and there was this this foreign Gentile power, the Roman Empire, who were in charge. And they had to pay taxes to them. And so they saw tax collectors as traitors, essentially. These were Jews working for the enemy. Jews that were buddy-buddy with Rome. Not only this, but the whole system was corrupt. And so they would charge people more than was necessary, and after they then paid the taxes, they would keep a little bit for themselves. And so they grew wealthy in a dishonest way. They were crooks. They were corrupt. And so Zacchaeus here is a chief tax collector. 
Meaning he's pretty high up in the system. This is actually the only place in the New Testament where we see a chief tax collector mentioned. We've heard about tax collectors in general, but here, Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector in Jericho. That's not all we learn about Zacchaeus, though. If you look at verse 3, the text gives us another interesting detail about our friend. What does it say? It says he is he's short. Which is always interesting when the Bible includes a detail like that because usually the Bible doesn't go to great lengths to describe people's appearance. But here it tells us that he's short. Now, if you were considered short in the ancient world, you would be considered very short by our standards today. Okay, so this is a very vertically challenged man, probably below five feet tall. Any short people in the room? I see you. I see. I see you. This one's for you, people, okay? This one's for you. Because we know, let's be honest, in a lot of ways, it's a tall people's world, okay? It's a tall person's world. Unless you're getting on an airplane, it's a tall person's world, okay? So I know short people, you got to deal with high kitchen shelves that are hard to reach. Basketball's hard for you. I'm sorry. Seeing over people in a crowd can be hard for you. Okay, so short people, this one is for you. Zacchaeus, our, our short friend, sees Jesus, and he wants to know more, right? He's intrigued by Jesus. At this point, we don't know what he knows about Jesus. We can assume that uh, the message of Jesus has spread throughout the region. He's probably heard about this healer, this teacher, this potential Messiah. Maybe this is the Savior, this miracle worker. People are talking about it, and Zacchaeus is in some way drawn to him. Maybe someone in his family has mentioned it or he overheard someone in a local coffee shop talking about this Jesus and he knows Jesus now is coming to town and he sees him and he wants to know more. Seems like he's not quite sold yet, but he wants to find out a little bit more about who this Jesus is. And so, verse 4, what does he do? Climbs a tree, a sycamore fig tree, which would have low extending branches that would be easy for someone to climb. And he climbs up into this tree so he could get a better view of Jesus. Because let's be honest, short people, you got to be resourceful, right? He's resourceful. You need that step stool in the kitchen to reach stuff. Zacchaeus needs the tree, climbs up the tree to see Jesus. And that's where our story has us so far. This wealthy chief tax collector our short friend Zacchaeus climbs a tree to get a better view of Jesus. And the story continues in verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Jesus gets to where Zacchaeus is posted up in his little tree house watching things unfold. Jesus looks up, he sees him, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. And now, two things are striking about what Jesus says here. The first is that Jesus knows his name. That's an important detail. Jesus knows his name. I don't think they've crossed paths before. But Jesus looks at him, and he says, you know what, Zacchaeus, you might be searching for me in some way. You might want to know a little bit more about me, but I already know all about you. I know your name. I know your story. I know where you've been. I know where you come from. I know the good 
in your life, and I know the bad. I know it all. I know your name. And friends, we regularly will talk about the glory of God and the majesty of God and the the bigness of God, if we could put it that way, how great God is and powerful and sovereign over everything, all creation and all of history, and that is all completely true. But at the same time, we worship a God who knows details and specific people in specific places. He knows specific names. We serve a personal God, and so Jesus draws near to Zacchaeus, and he says, I know your name, and I know your story. He knows your name, too. The other thing that's striking about what Jesus says here is that he invites himself over. You catch that? He says, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today, so Mary must not have taught Jesus appropriate social etiquette. I'm coming over. And you're like, he does, he does what? I mean, even in the first century, trust me, even in the first century, it was all about hospitality and warmth and welcoming people in way more so than today. Even in the first century, this was not normal. This was not expected. This was quite presumptuous, even for an esteemed rabbi, even for a teacher that was well-respected. I mean, he doesn't even ask. You know, this is not like, Hey, you got some time later? Or could I come by? Could, you know, fit me in your schedule? He's like, I'm coming over, Zacchaeus. I'm coming to your house today. Maybe you could try that today with someone after church. <laughs> you don't have lunch plans? I must come to lunch at your house today. See what happens. Try it. I don't know. Maybe it'll work. But this is Jesus, okay? So Jesus gets away with it. He can do that sort of thing. And if we reflect on this in a bit of a deeper way, I think that some of us have had this sort of experience with Jesus, where Jesus kind of shows up in our life, maybe invited, maybe not so much, and he simply says, hey, I'm coming over. I've heard the story of people who are maybe reluctant converts to Christianity, people who didn't necessarily want Christianity to be true. They didn't necessarily want to follow Jesus. They didn't want Jesus to be real, but as they looked at the details closer, they began to see that they could not deny who Jesus was. He showed up to them in such a real way. They could not shake him. They could not explain him away. And they ultimately realized that this Jesus is who he says he is. So he kind of showed up into their life and said, I'm coming over. Think of C.S. Lewis, the author that so many of us love. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote so many other Christian works that we enjoy. He put it this way, talking about his own conversion to the faith later in life. He says, That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I was the most reluctant convert, didn't necessarily want it to be true, but it began with Jesus just saying, I'm coming over. He was kind of brought kicking and screaming, and Lewis eventually, this reluctance turned to devotion and great joy in Christ. But with Zacchaeus, it started with Jesus seeing him, knowing his name, and saying, 
I'm coming over. And Zacchaeus does welcome him gladly, the text tells us. He probably wouldn't be expecting this sort of response from Jesus, from a rabbi, from this type of teacher. He probably was expecting rejection of some kind, and yet Jesus says, I'm coming over. Now, maybe you think at this point, well, this is a really sweet story. The man who had no friends, Jesus goes over to his house. Now he has a friend. Jesus loves him. Jesus enters his life that warms our hearts. We should celebrate this truth. But the people around Jesus in this moment were not celebrating. Look at the text as it continues in verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. So the people watching this unfold, they, rather than celebrating, rather than having their hearts warmed and stirred at this display of grace, they're grumbling to themselves. They're muttering, they're gasping even. These religious people, churchy people, disciples of Jesus, devout religious people saying, he's going to Zacchaeus' house? Does he know? Does he know who Zacchaeus is? Is Jesus aware of what he's doing? What this might mean for him? See, this is a problem for the people because of who Zacchaeus was. He was a tax collector, as we've talked about. He was dishonest. He was corrupt. And in the ancient world, being a guest in someone's house and eating food at their table was much more than just a casual thing to do. It was an embrace. It formed a bond between people. It signaled friendship. It signaled acceptance. It signaled love. I mean, it was one thing to rub shoulders with sinners out there, but to go into their home and spend time with them around the table, that meant something else entirely. A good Jewish teacher like Jesus, a man of God, the son of God, wouldn't it? want to be associated with these kinds of people, right? He wouldn't want to be guilty by association. Drawing near to Zacchaeus wouldn't want people thinking he's accepting his lifestyle. Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, wouldn't want to be guilty by association. If Zacchaeus was unclean in the eyes of the religious community, then surely Jesus would become unclean by spending time with him and eating at his table. It would seriously call into question Jesus' reputation. But that doesn't stop Jesus. He goes to his home. And Jesus here is showing us the heart of God. He's showing us what God is like. See, the Bible gives us this picture of of the kingdom of God and of heaven and the future we have to look forward to and it often describes it as a feast. A feast at the table of God in his house. This banquet that we have to look forward to where we'll eat and drink and celebrate. And this text here with Zacchaeus is Jesus showing us who's going to be around that table. Who's welcome to join in the celebration. Sinners like Zacchaeus. And this is interesting because Zacchaeus isn't the typical sinner that we often think of. I mean, if you think about the really messy, sinful people in the Bible, 
usually what comes to mind is like, you know, the woman at the well who has this questionable sexual past and all these husbands and the person she's with now isn't her husband and her life's a total mess. There's all kinds of shame around her. We think about her or we think about the prodigal son who runs away from home, tells his dad he wants nothing to do with him, squanders his family's wealth and wild, reckless living, probably with prostitutes and substance abuse and all kinds of things like that, and ultimately ends up desperate. Desperate and needing God in such a clear way. But that's not really the picture we get of Zacchaeus here, right? Sure, he's lonely, probably, doesn't have many friends, but he's rich. He has means. He has wealth. Probably comfortable in a lot of ways, not desperate in a lot of ways. And so this causes us to question, okay, God's grace is there for people. We know God's grace is there for people who have just been, been chewed up and spit out by a harsh world, right? The people who are down and out, the, the outcast with a questionable past. We, we know God's grace is there for them, but what about people like Zacchaeus? Who's, he's doing the chewing up and spitting out. He's the one in power. He's the one mistreating people. He's the one with wealth. Is there hope for people like Zacchaeus, for selfish, rich people, that their hearts would be changed, that God's grace would be for them as well? Jesus shows us the answer is yes. God's grace is for people like Zacchaeus. Now, look at how Zacchaeus responds in verse 8. It says, but Zacchaeus stood up as the people are grumbling and muttering, and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. All right, so Zacchaeus is welcomed by Jesus, and, and then he announces this massive change in his life. He's now going to give away half of his possessions to the poor, verse 8 tells us. And he says, if I've cheated anyone out of money, I'm going to pay them back four times the amount. The requirement in the Old Testament law for restitution was paying back what you took and then about 20% extra to make up for it. And Zacchaeus is saying, I'm going to pay back four times the amount. So he's going way beyond what the law would, would require. Much more radical because he's so impacted by this encounter he's had with Jesus. Even though it's brief, this short interaction has so changed him, transformed his heart that he resolves now to totally upend his life. We see that a real encounter with Jesus will lead to a changed life. It has to. Now, if we're honest, some of us want the story to stop before verse 8. I mean, we like verses 1 through 7. We like those, but verse 8, not so sure. Think about it. What happens in 1 through 7? Zacchaeus, tax collector, sinner, but he wants to know more about Jesus. He has no friends, but he climbs up this tree and Jesus shows him that he knows his name and he loves him and he says, I'm coming over and he enters his life. And even though people grumble, we see the grace of God and the love of God shown in Christ for Zacchaeus. And we say, ah, it's so beautiful. Jesus loves sinners. God welcomes 
sinners into his table. We are saved by grace, not by good works. And God invites even people like us, even in our mess and even in our dysfunction, to come to him and he'll clean our hearts and he'll heal us. And we want to stop there. Now, those things are all true. Those things are all true. But there's more to the story. There's more to the story. And see, sometimes what we do is we want to stop at verse 7 and say, you know what? It doesn't really matter how you live. God loves you. God is gracious. God is forgiving. So do what you want. You don't have to clean up your life in any particular way. I mean, sure, there's some commands in the Bible, but don't worry about those. God's gracious. God is kind. He forgives. He's going to love you no matter what. So just do what you want. And that's sometimes the Jesus that we want. Love, grace, forgiveness, and then go live and do what I want. And when we start to talk about things like obedience or like obeying the commands of Jesus or not doing the things that the Bible forbids, we're quick to cry, legalism! Where's the grace? You're all about the rules. And yet, we see here that a real encounter with Jesus will lead to a changed life, will lead to obedience. It has to. Imagine, imagine with me if Zacchaeus has this encounter with Jesus. He says, I'm so glad that, that Jesus has welcomed me into his life. He's come over to my house. He's shown me this incredible grace. I mean, Jesus and I are good now. And you know what? God just really wants me to be happy. And so I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I got dishonest business practice. He forgives that. It's okay. I can keep mistreating people. Not a big deal. God is gracious. God forgives. And frankly, I like my comforts. I like the wealth that I have. So I'm not, I'm not going to change anything in my life, but sure, I'll, I'll take this Jesus thing on the side and the forgiveness, and uh, that all sounds really nice. I mean, what would you say to Zacchaeus if he said that to you? You'd say, uh, hold on, I mean, wouldn't it make you wonder? Did he really get the message? Has he really been changed by Jesus? If, if nothing in his life is changing... If he's not righting any of the wrongs in his life, has the grace of God really impacted his heart? I think we'd all say, no, something would be terribly wrong with that picture. And so friends, it simply will not do to say, you know what, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves sinful people, so I can just live how I want. I can sleep with who I want. I can spend my money how I want. I can spend my time how I want. Sure, there's some things in the Bible that maybe God wants me to follow, but it's not really that big of a deal. I'm just going to make the decisions myself. That's cheap grace. And if that's the Jesus that we're following, that's not the Jesus of Scripture. That's some Jesus that we've made up. Because God in his grace invites us to come as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are. Right, we come with all our baggage, all the mess, all the sin, and God welcomes us still, and then... God in his grace doesn't leave us there. He begins to change us and shape us and call us to live differently and to live in ways that line up with him and his heart and his word. And so, friends, 
a real encounter with Jesus will lead to a changed life. It has to. Not a perfect life, not a flawless life, but a changed life. So I ask you, what might need to change in your life? We can use our short friend Zacchaeus here as a guide who, upon encountering Jesus, looks at his life and says, you know what? Things are not the way they should be, Lord. I've been mistreating people. I've been stealing from people. I've been hoarding my wealth, and I want to make it right. Now that I'm with Jesus, I need to look back at the wrong in my past, and I need to start trying to make things right. Heard a story this week of a pastor that was preaching about this topic, about confessing sin, seeking restitution, making wrongs right in our lives, and he was sharing this message, and a young person came up to him after the sermon and was quite conflicted because they had been stealing from their boss. This young person was a Christian, but they began a little side project in their spare time at home. They were building a boat, and in order to build this boat, they were using copper nails, which apparently are quite expensive. I don't know much about boating, but apparently copper nails are pretty expensive. So there you go. And so his boss had a bunch of them, and he didn't see that his boss really used them or needed them much, so he started taking some little by little to his house, and he knew it was stealing, but he justified it. The boss isn't going to miss them. The boss would probably want me to have these. It's not a big deal. So he takes these copper nails to build this boat at home. But when he hears this message about being obedient to the ways of Jesus, he was convicted. He said, i got to do something about this. But now I don't know what to do because if I go and tell my boss that I've been stealing from him and my boss knows I'm a Christian, then isn't that going to look really bad for the name of Jesus? Isn't that going to make things look really messy? My boss is not a Christian, he said. And I've talked to him about Jesus. And so if I go and tell him what's been going on, he's just going to say, ah, I knew it. I knew you Christians were all just a bunch of phonies bunch of hypocrites. And so, so I, I got to keep hiding it, right? So they talked, they prayed, and ultimately this man saw he, he could not get these copper nails out of his mind. And so he had to go and confess to his boss. And so he did. And the pastor caught up with him a little bit later and said, well, how did it go? How did your boss respond? And he told him this. He said, well, my boss said, you know what, I always did think that you were a hypocrite and a phony. But now that you say this, I'm beginning to feel like there's something to this Christianity. Because any religion that would make a dishonest workman come back and confess that he had been stealing copper nails and offer to settle the account and make it right, there must be something there worth having. And so the boss was not impressed necessarily by this man's seemingly flawless life. What impressed him was the man's willingness to confess his sin, bring it to the light, and want to make things right. That made him say, you know what, there's something to this whole Jesus thing if he would drive his people to live like that. Because everybody sins. And everybody does things they shouldn't do. But, but if Christians can acknowledge their sin and seek to make things right more and more, 
that says something about the Jesus that we follow. And so I ask you, what in your life, in your present, maybe in your past, do you need to make right? Maybe it's a similar situation like this, something at work, something having to do with money or slowly stealing things, I don't know. Maybe it has to do, though, with, with relationships. Maybe there are people in your life that you've wronged, that you've mistreated over the years. Even as a Christian, you've misrepresented who Jesus is and what Christians are about in your interactions with that person. Maybe it's someone in your family, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a coworker. This is an invitation to, as our friend Zacchaeus did, make things right. Seek forgiveness. Have a, a really uncomfortable conversation. Say, you know what? I wasn't representing Jesus in this moment. I wasn't living how I was supposed to live when I said that to you. When I treated you in this way. And seek to make it right. Now, Notice the order here. This is really important. Notice the order of events in the text. Zacchaeus is responding to grace. He's not earning it. Zacchaeus is doing this in response to the grace and love of Jesus. He's not earning it. Jesus calls him by name, enters his life. I'm coming over Zacchaeus, and then, then Zacchaeus responds I'm going to give away half of my possessions. I'm going to right the wrongs in my past. And that, friends, is how the gospel works. We're justified by faith. We're given this gift of forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus, through no work of our own. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. God gives it to us. And then, in response, we live new lives. In response, with gratitude and joy in our hearts, we live obedient lives. We seek to please the Lord. Again, not out of fear in order that we might be forgiven, but because we are forgiven. Now we live in this new way. And Jesus summarizes this whole encounter in verse 9. Look at it. It says, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This man belongs to the people of God, not by birth but by faith. And this is why Jesus came, to seek and save the lost. This is why he came in person, to show us what it looks like when God draws near and invites us in. Many religious philosophies will say God is up here or enlightenment is up here or ultimate reality is up here and you have to work your way up to it obey or give or behave or whatever it is to, to find God, to reach the top of that mountain. But only Jesus says, I came down to find you. I came down to save you. And, and Jesus isn't sugarcoating things. Right? This isn't saying, you know what, I, I came to help the pretty good people become slightly better people. He says, I came to seek and save the lost. I came to rescue those who were desperate and hopeless and broken. And friends, that's, that's where true Christianity begins. For any of us that truly want to follow Jesus, that's where it starts. I was lost, and now I'm found. Jesus has rescued me, has saved me. So there, there's no true Christian faith without acknowledging that we're lost. That without Jesus, we're lost. Without Jesus, we're desperate. Without Jesus, we're, we're sinners. 
deserving of judgment and condemnation and death before a holy and righteous God. But God in his love and grace came to save us, to seek and save the lost. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you showed up in person. You came to save us, to rescue us. And we're so grateful for this picture of Zacchaeus that we get, this man who had no friends, this man who was a sinner, and yet you said, I'm coming over. And you loved him and entered his life. We thank you that you have done that for us, for all who have put their faith in you. And we pray, Jesus, that you would help us live changed lives, filled with your spirit, with new hearts, seeking to obey you. Help us to be people who want to make things right that have been wrong in our lives, who want to more and more align our hearts with yours. Would you help us do that, Jesus? It's in your name we pray. Amen.